What if you could complete your MBA in just one year? Thanks to the College of Charleston School of Business, now you can. Their accelerated MBA program condenses a traditional two-year program into one rigorous year, ensuring you not only save a year of tuition and fees, but also re-enter the workforce quickly and graduate with critical business knowledge. U.S. News & World Report recognized the College of Charleston MBA as number one in the country for its job placement rate within three months of graduation. Learn more at mba.cfc.edu. Opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Each Saturday morning at 9, successful business leaders and entrepreneurs from across the Lowcountry talk about what it takes to succeed in business and in life. Now your hosts of Beyond the Business, Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood. And great Saturday morning, Lowcountry. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Business, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business and Coastal Wealth Management. I'm one of your hosts here this morning, Eric Cox, with the lovely and talented Leslie Haywood. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Eric, and good morning, Low Country. Thank you so much for joining us and Low Country, uh, world. Yes, we are worldwide. Are worldwide. Worldwide. We got listeners from all over the globe. And make sure and continue the fun beyond Saturday mornings and follow us on our Facebook page at Beyond the Business or on Twitter at BTBCHS. So, how are you doing this Saturday morning, Eric? I'm getting my fix on ready for next weekend with Turkey Day coming and all that good stuff. So uh, we're rocking and rolling hard to believe we are almost out of time in 2021. Um, The good news is we still have more shows to go, Leslie, more shows, more great dynamic leaders and entrepreneurs to tell their life stories. Isn't that great? I'm excited. I'm excited. I can't believe we're about to close out 2021. Well, we had another great guest on the last couple of weeks, uh, Mr. Chad Strawn. Chad is uh, the founder and owner of Tidewater Pharmacy uh, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And uh, what a great uh, story that that Chad was able to share. Uh, Give us a nugget or two that you took away from Chad's show. Yeah, as the owner of Tidewater Pharmacy, I just loved his energy and enthusiasm for what he does. And you can tell that he has a passion for helping people. And it was interesting how he was able to turn something as awful as a global pandemic into something positive um, for helping people and ultimately helping his business. And being a small independent pharmacy, he was able to adapt and maneuver quicker than any of his uh, corporate competitors and offer services that others couldn't, especially during those early days when people just weren't walking through the doors of his business. Um, he was forced to rethink his services and um, ultimately provide um, services that other people just couldn't get. And uh, it, it was it was awesome seeing his take on that. Talk about a silver lining. Um, yeah, that was it was a great show. What was yeah, a he- takeaway for you? You know, I really resonated with the old jumping off the cliff, right? He was in corporate America, got tired of it, wore him down, jumped off the cliff, started his own company. And, you know, for the first two years, didn't take a salary. And, you know, the things that you have to do in the beginning of entrepreneurship to make it successful. That's what I love about this show is sharing those moments and what it took. And, of course, to see his success today is incredible. And uh, so just really appreciate uh, Chad. And I have to give him kudos because – 
Uh, he and I ended up getting to go to the College of Charleston game the other night, and unfortunately, we lost to to the UNC Chapel Hill. Oh. Uh, but it was a close game. He was worried, but we had a really good time, and appreciate him sharing his story. So thanks again, That's Chad, awesome. for being on the show. In case you happen to miss uh, Chad's segment, by the way, don't fret. Simply go to Spotify or iTunes or our website at coastalwm.com and just type in Beyond the Business, and you will be able to pull up Chad's segment as long as well as uh, all of our segments from the last eight years, Leslie. We're getting old. We're getting old. <laughs> We are. We're getting old together. Oh, Feeling God. the pain. So, hey, we're going to turn the page like we always do. Another great guest we're excited to have on today, uh, Mr. Marty Strong. Marty is the CEO and Chief Strategy Officer for LGS Management Group up in Virginia Beach. He's also an author. He's written multiple books. We're going to talk all about that. But first off, Marty, good morning from Virginia Beach. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you on, and as Leslie and I get the pleasure of each Saturday morning doing interviewing folks from around the globe, we span from obviously our headquarters in the Low Country of South Carolina. We've been <laughs> to Belgium, headquarters. Right. global headquarters. We've been to Belgium. We've been plenty of times over over the north of the border into Canada, and now we're going to focus in on Virginia Beach. I don't think we've had a guest from Virginia Beach actually. I don't think so. I don't think you're, so. You're a first, Marty. Good. I like being first So, or, be, or being ahead. We, that's right. So before we dive into your childhood, if you don't mind, give our listeners a really quick 20-second commercial on uh, both LGS Management Group and certainly uh, your role as an author. LGS Management Group is a management holding company that has two different business entities uh, it's responsible for. I'm the CEO of that, of that management holding group. The two entities are a government contracting company and a healthcare company. So they both have leaders and, and I basically make sure they have all the resources that they need and track strategy opportunities and also focus on any threats on the horizon. That's my day job. And that's what I do most of the time from about 5.15 in the morning to seven in the morning, I write. I've got eight novels over the last seven, eight years that are, that are published. Uh, under ML Strong. And then I have a business book called Be Nimble, How the Creative Seal, Navy Seal Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. That comes out 1 January. It's a pre-sale right now on Amazon. And then the second business book, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership and the Age of Optimization comes out next summer. Wow, I know, and I don't know how we're gonna get all of your, all of your history in one show, but we're gonna try because after all, this is beyond the business. People you know, stories you don't. Um, so let's take it back, though. Let's uh, let's go back to your childhood and where were you born? Um, what was life like? What was family life like? Tell us a little bit about Marty. Sure. I missed being a Texan by three days. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to bug anybody else, but it bugs me because I'm not eligible to be a Texas Ranger. So uh, my my family thought I was going to be born. My parents thought I was going to be born in El Paso. I ended up three days later being born in Sydney, Nebraska, which is in the panhandle of Nebraska, and it does not qualify you for anything. I looked, I checked, it doesn't. Uh, the... I guess I spent about four or five years there, uh, my initial uh, upbringing out in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, and then we moved to Omaha, Nebraska, which still is the largest city in that state. And we were there for probably six or seven years, and my father uh, 
volunteered. He was working for the Corps of Engineers as a civilian employee. He volunteered to go to Vietnam as a civilian, and he worked in Saigon for about a year and a half. So he, we were, my mom, my brother and sister were kind of alone in, in Omaha. And you know, that was an interesting period of time in my life. I had to mow lawns when I was about half the weight of the mower. But uh, it was it was a good thing, too, because it, it gave me a chance to, quote, unquote, be the man of the family, uh, even though I was eight or nine years old. And I had a lot of chores and a lot of responsibilities. And and a lot of my friends and my fathers helped me, taught me things because my dad was, wasn't there. So at the end of that time period, uh, he came back from Vietnam. And within about six months, he accepted a job in Japan. So we rented the house out and moved to Japan for four years. And that was that was great. We lived on military housing. We uh, pretty much to keep him going crazy. He played intramural youth sports nonstop. Every sport you could possibly get into because there was nothing else to do. There was no U.S. Uh, television. There was Armed Forces Radio. And the only thing that they played that you could listen to were the old radio shows from the 30s and 40s, like The Lone Ranger and The Shadow. And so I got it all twisted around. I, I became very, very attuned with those old radio shows from the age of uh, about 10 to 14. And they also restricted the kind of music that you could listen to in the jukeboxes. And at the time, rock and roll was, it was you know, blowing up the United States. This is the late 60s. And we were listening to uh, doo-wop music from the late 50s and early 60s. So, and there's a point to that story because when my parents divorced in Japan, my mom, my brother and sister and I moved back to Omaha, get off the plane, walk in. I've got a crew cut. I haven't been aware, allowed to wear jeans to school or anything on the military bases. And I've been listening to doo-wop music and old 40s radio shows. And I go next door to see my best friend and say, hey, I'm back. He's got hair down to his shoulders. He's got bell-bottom jeans all ripped up. And he's listening to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. And yeah, I look like, like you like of, you missed a whole generation, right? <laughs> I came out of it. Not only that, I missed my generation. I somehow ended up getting somebody else's generation between the music and the radio show. So yeah, it, it kind of messed me up there. But that that's how I ended up back in Nebraska. And at the end of that time frame, uh, my my mom and I got into a route and uh, I went to my friend's house and my dad said, come on to Hawaii because he'd moved to Hawaii under orders. So I moved to Honolulu and I went to high school for a couple of years there. And then he got transferred to uh, Detroit to the tank command. And I ended up uh, living in Gross Point, Michigan, which is where the, gro the movie Gross Point comes from. I went to Gross Point South High School and I joined the Navy. And that, that's how I kind of escaped the uh the regular life so so going through all that obviously a heck of a journey right a lot of change and and non-constants in your life uh, when you were a child did you sort of have a vision of what you thought you were going to do when you grew up and then ultimately like you said you ended up in the navy did those two intersect or was that kind of opposite of what you believed as a child what i wanted to do when i was young enough to start having those kinds of thoughts I wanted to be a lead guitarist or singer in a rock band. I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I wanted to be a writer. Because I liked writing, even when I was really young. And I, I liked military war movies. I used to watch those with my father. I'd never thought of myself going into the Navy, although he was in the Navy during the Korean War. 
if I saw myself at all, it was more in the kind of the heroic uh, old battles with swords and spears and things, you know, which ironically, my four of my books, my four of my novels are time travel books about going back in time to fight and survive, you know, kind of in a brotherhood uh, warrior uh, mindset. And joining the Navy for me was just getting out of kind of a dead end family situation. And I wasn't going to be, um, I wasn't encouraged to go to college. I had a 4.0 grade, grade average. And my dad basically said, join the military, see the world, then figure out what you want to do. But you're not going to get any money from me. And he wasn't going to give me any advice on how to get scholarships, et cetera. So I joined the Navy as a default. Now, when you joined, my my dad was in, in the Navy, and we actually were in Pearl Harbor, stationed in Pearl Harbor. He was a, a submariner. So when you joined, what did you think you wanted to do? I mean, you went the Navy SEAL route, but uh, is that where you went initially? Is that what you thought you wanted to do? No. And you're going to find it's a very nonlinear history. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. We love me. nonlinear. Let's I'm, I'm, all over the place. I'm well known, you know by my peers and, and people that have worked with me over the years as a, a strategic thinker and kind of a visionary thinker and a, a good planner. But I tend to jump through the, the opening a lot when, it, when there's an opportunity and that necessarily doesn't necessarily take me in a linear direction, but it takes me in a, in an, I guess, in a, an instinctively a positive direction. Right. So in this case, I had nothing to do with it. I, I joined the Navy. The only thing I knew about the Navy is my dad was a radar operator in the Korean war now, now the radar operating uh, profession included air traffic control. So that's what I joined the Navy to be. I went through the school. I became a qualified radar operator and air traffic control uh, guy. But while I was in boot camp, I took a swimming test. And I didn't realize at the time they took my name, my social security number down and everything. So when I graduated from air traffic control and radar school, they handed me my orders and they, they read them out to you because they know you're an idiot at, at 17 and a half years old or whatever. Uh, report no later than tomorrow morning, 0730 to underwater demolition seal training, Coronado, California. I didn't know what the words meant. I didn't know what the letters meant. I tried to explain this to the guy. He said, here are your tickets. Get to O'Hare airport. If you miss your flight, you're going to be in trouble. So I called my dad from the airport and he said, well, I don't know what's going on. And I don't know what that, those words mean, but you need to go there because it's the Navy and that's why they call them orders and find a chief, find a chief petty officer and tell them the story. And I'm sure they'll sort it all out. So I ended up in Coronado, California on a Friday on Monday, I went over to the uh, seal training command and asked to talk to a chief. And instead they gave me a master chief, which is the top level you can get in, in the enlisted ranks. Vietnam uh, veteran, multiple combat tours in Vietnam. And he talked me in to staying and trying it which is not hard to do when you're 17 and a half and you've, you're confused about all the rules in the Navy and all that. I, I was a competitive swimmer. I played football. I wrestled. I ran track. I surfed in Hawaii. So a lot of the questions he asked me kind of aligned with some of the things that they were going to test and, and train you for. And as a volunteer program, he said, essentially, you're going to, you've already trained to do what you, what you can do. They're going to send you right back out to the fleet to, to do that. If you fail here, why don't you try it? And so I did. Joined a class of 126. Six months later, there were 13 of us originals graduating, and I was one of them. My only distinction was I was the worst runner in the class <laughs> beginning, and I was the worst runner in the class on graduation day. <laughs> 
What a journey. What a journey. And so uh, now that that path, as you said, had kind of twisted and turned and, and you're I know, in it's that, 17. We're only at 17, 17 and right. a half. Like that's, <laughs> that's insane. Um, where did you envision that for you, Marty, going next? Like where did you see your time with the, the Navy and being a SEAL? Like ultimately, what was that going to lead you to? I never thought I was going to stay for a career. I figured it was a four-year deal. But once you get through, nowadays, the screening and the training, the preliminary training is much longer. It's about two years. Back then, it was about a year, I guess. You you came out of the SEAL training course. You went to Army jump school. You learned how to parachute jump. You only got five jumps. And then you showed up at your, your SEAL team. And you basically knew nothing. You had just been screened to, to be uh, trained and prepared for the profession of being a SEAL, which you don't really completely appreciate at that moment, but you find out pretty quick when, you know, my, uh, my first enlisted leader within a couple of days of showing up at seal team two was a medal of honor winner, Michael Thornton, who's from South Carolina, lives in Texas now, I think. And Mike's a huge guy, about six foot two, six foot three. And, uh, I walked into, into the office and said, okay, I'm here. You know, what do you want me to do? And he looked around and he said, empty that trash can. And that's how I started. So, you know, you, you walk out maybe with a big vision. That, wow, I, I passed this incredible crucible of training and and now I'm a Navy SEAL. Now I can jump out of airplanes and I was qualified to empty a trash can at SEAL Team 2. And that's how the, that's how it starts for everybody because you have thousands of things to learn in lots of different categories of performance. You have to execute as an individual. You have to execute within a team, within different types of teams. You have a, a key specialty at some point that you go to schools for and that you're groomed to uh, and mentored to become uh, an expert in. Then you have secondary uh, expertise, areas of expertise that you're also trained in as a fallback. So we have resiliency and bench strength and because we're in small groups. And that's the constant process. It's training, molding, and preparing nonstop. If you're in for 20 years, it's that's the 20-year job. If you're in for 30, it's 30. If you're in for four, nothing changes. And like professional sports, if you don't keep up and you don't uh, continue to perform at a high level, which is internally driven by that time, you don't want to let your, your peers down for sure, then you either um, realize it and you leave or somebody lets you know that you're not cutting it anymore. So by the time you're about 30 years old, you know, you're already broken up and beat up and, you know, may have been shot or whatever, but um, you're trying to struggle against age and the uh, the accumulation of injuries and, and damage to your body. And uh, you're reminded of it every day when some 23-year-old studs come, come screaming by you on a run in full combat equipment and says, morning, sir. You know, and you know what he, well, you know what he means. <laughs> now, what, was, what, what were some of those lessons that you learned in your early career as a Navy SEAL that you keep with you today? You, you can't take failure too seriously. And you can't take success too seriously. I write, I write about it in, in, in the Being Able book, but it's kind of an intellectual humility thing. You, you learn that yesterday was a great day or yesterday was a terrible day. But if you carry any of that forward psychologically into today, it's going to muddy the way you react to the reality of today. And since they change up the training and basic training and later on in scenario work, they're constantly trying to throw what ifs and, and wild cards at at individual SEALs and as SEALs as teams, because you're there to do the special jobs, not the ones that are conventional and understood and are choreographed and there's a football play already designed for. 
you're thrown in to a situation where everything you were told might have completely flipped and it's wrong now, but you still have to figure it out. And it's a very high risk environment where you're trying to do this, right? So that's how they train and groom SEALs. And so it's very um, appropriate and, and useful from day one in the basic training all the way through to understand that just because you got promoted yesterday or just because you got an award yesterday or just because you failed at something yesterday, it's, it's a moot point. It doesn't matter. You, you never rest on your laurels and you never rest on your failures. Mm-hmm. Take what you can from them as lessons learned, but you don't let it color the way you approach the, the world and the day and the challenges come. And I, I carry that through. I mentor people the same way. It's in the book. It's, it's a key takeaway from that SEAL experience. So, Marty, I know once you left military service, you went on to spend seven years uh, actually in my industry, right, as an investment advisor. And you also <laughs> went on from that into an upper management position in a defense contracting uh, space. So give us an idea of what it was like to go from the Navy into the corporate America life and kind of what you took away from those two kind of obviously very different experiences, but yet maybe some similarities that came out of it. Sure. So I spent the first half of the SEAL teams as enlisted and then with officers candidate school after getting an undergraduate degree in business and then a, and then a graduate degree in, in management and finished out the second 10 years as an officer and for the last year, I prepared to go into law school. I wanted to be a lawyer. Took the LSAT. Get ready here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this left turn again. All set up, ready to go. And a friend of mine came in who was in the investment world working for a company called Alex Brown in Baltimore. And he said, hey, let's go to lunch. He talks me out of becoming a lawyer, talks me into becoming an investment advisor. I thought I was going to go to Alex Brown. I decided to do some more research. and I ended up at Lake Mason with Walker in uh in baltimore and was with them for two years and then shifted over to united bank of switzerland and uh became a portfolio management manager with ubs all high net worth fee-based work now as we start to wind down the show it at this point, did you have visions of being an entrepreneur, going out on your own, doing something um, in the entrepreneurial world? And if so, what did that look like? How did that start to frame up in your head? So after I went through my initial um, series, series six, series seven, a lot of other uh, tests and qualifications that you have to have to become a, uh, an investment advisor, I was basically given a desk and I was told, go for it. And then I realized they weren't going to give me clients. I really didn't, I guess I didn't get that part of it. This was at Leg Mason. So I, there's no, no, they don't teach sales or how to sell in, in business. So I had no skills other than I could speak in front of people because I was a briefing officer, et cetera. So I um, took about a day in a state of shock. Uh, we had salary for a couple of months while we were taking the test. Then we went on pure commission and fees. So there was no salary. So if I didn't find clients, and I didn't capture their assets, and I didn't sell, I was done. It took two days for me to get to that realization, and once I realized that, I tried to talk to everybody who knew how to sell, everybody in the business at our company that uh, could give me advice, and became essentially an entrepreneur because you, under their model, you if you wanted to um, do marketing, you paid for it out of, your, out of your own money. If you wanted to hire somebody to come in and do something, you paid for it out of your own money. If you wanted to do a booth at a show, you paid for the rental of the booth out of your own money. So you actually set up a business with their their backstopping and their their brand, and they said go for it. So, and UBS was the same way. So I essentially did not have a W two income from the time I left the Navy, for 
for that whole eight years that I was working in investment uh, advisory work, and then for two years when I was a consultant afterwards, that was all consulting fees. So I went 10 straight years without a W-2 paycheck. It was all entrepreneurial, selling and building a book of business. So for you, Marty, as we wind this down, it really wasn't like a, a, a moment. A lot of our entrepreneurs, they just jump off the cliff, right, into entrepreneurship. This was sort of a gradual over the years. You were moving into entrepreneurship and becoming more comfortable with the role of what that was going to look like eventually for you. I'll say I I came around the bend in the river and fell off the waterfall, not realizing at Lake Mason that I didn't know how to do what I was supposed to do. I didn't have any clients, and I basically was looking at a at a disaster. So I, you know, I jumped off the cliff after two days of thinking about it. I guess I could have quit and tried to find a job. But, you know, in that in that sense, I didn't plan it, but it was the same, same effect of jumping off the cliff and starting from zero. And, and in our last sort of quick moment, give us a dichotomy again between being in uh, the Navy and working for and with these very large Fortune 100 corporations. What, what, what did you see as the difference of that? The, the biggest difference is, especially in the, in the elite uh, units in the Navy, you're very, very mission focused. You're very cause focused. You feel like it's a greater cause. It's not about how much money you make. It's not about moving up in rank. It's not really about a lot of things. It's not about you. It's more about, you know, it's not we, it's me kind of a concept. And the same way in the fighter community. And I have a good friend lives there in Charleston, uh, Seamus Flatley. Flatley family is a big aviation family going back to World War II. And, you know, when, when I worked with him, I felt like I was back in, you know, it was like a hand in glove fit as far as cultural, you know, we had the same kind of uh, viewpoint on the future, same kind of viewpoint on, on executing teamwork. You help the people around you, you train your replacements, but when you, for the most part outside of uniform, you're not working with people that were in uniform. So you're working with people that have a different paradigm and a, and a different dynamic. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just different. It's more, I don't, it's job security and how do I move ahead? How do I get my next raise? And that focus is a mission, but it's a mini mission. It's, it's the me mission as opposed to the we mission. So I think I spend a lot of time conveying the bigger picture mission, conveying the, the value of we, and trying not to hire people that are so me focused that it's disruptive to the culture that I'm trying to create. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, we ran out of time. It goes by quick, doesn't it? Uh, your life in 26 minutes. Um, so, Marty, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Again, Marty Strong, CEO and Chief Strategy Officer for LGS Manager Group, as well as author that we're going to talk a lot more about in next week's segment. Thanks for your story today. Thanks for having me, guys. And begin. And again, you've been listening to Beyond the Business, heard here on 94.3 and simulcast on iHeartRadio. Uh, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business. And until next Saturday morning, Low Country, have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Tune in next Saturday morning at 9 for Beyond the Business, hosted by Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood, and heard exclusively on News Radio 94.3 WSC. The College of Charleston School of Business is recognized among the top 30 colleges for studying business abroad by the Business Research Guide. With nine undergraduate majors, 10 minors, and six concentration areas, an honors program in business, and master's programs in business and accountancy, the College of Charleston School of Business has more than 3,000 students enrolled. Their students are ready to work, and they're ready to make an impact. For more info, visit sb.cfc.edu.